0: Writers from his era call his ascent in the business world a rags to riches story. That's not true. Instead, he was a young man born near the banks of the Erie Canal who was a self-taught man with a knack for numbers who knew no strangers and cared about others. When the opportunity to work for Pierre DuPont for $10 a week arose, he said yes with no hesitation. They were two men who were polar opposites in terms of wealth and stature, a relationship that turned from employer to partner to fringe for life. John Jacob Rascoe became a larger-than-life financial whiz kid who brought the DuPont family wealth beyond measure by helping them to go public. After World War I, he started investing in the high-tech of the 1920s, General Motors, and he was able to convince the DuPont family to follow suit. After GM, Raskob threw himself into Catholic charities, politics on a grand stage, and finally, the Empire State Building. I'm thrilled and honored to visit with Raskob's biographer, David Farber. The book is Everybody Ought to be Rich, The Life and Times of John J. Raskob, Capitalist. I'm Mark Gandhi. This is CFO Bookshelf. Our interview with David Farber is Around the Corner. Everybody Ought to be Rich, I love reading business history. My favorite for some time has been the Whiz Kids, but Barber's book is running neck and neck with that title. And by the way, every financial leader, in my opinion, should read, should know the history of John J. Raskob. I consider him to be the first CFO of the modern era. And yet, the reader of any business books probably knows a little, if anything, about Raskob. And that's the first question I had for David Barber, his biographer.
1: I think it is intriguing that Raskov has kind of dropped out of our historical memory, especially since in the 1920s, he, he was a massive national celebrity. You know, his face was everywhere. He was on radio all the time. There were newsreels about him. He was called the great organizing genius of his time. So it is kind of intriguing that, you know, over a century or so, his name has really disappeared. I think in part and maybe this fits with your podcast, he was always a number two guy. He was not the CEO. He was not the president of the company. He was not the chairman of the board. He was, though it's an anachronism, the CFO. He was the the money guy, the numbers guy. And he was always a kind of half step behind some of the incredibly famous people he worked with. So maybe that's a piece of the puzzle. And I
0: was going to say, and... He was okay with that. He did not mind being out of the limelight. Uh, he was not one of those people who had to have his name on the front page. In fact, there are times where we'll learn later where he wanted to be behind
1: the scenes on the backstage, right? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, In the book, I kind of comically call him the anti-Trump. He, he was not a person who wanted to put his name or his visage on everything he did. I mean, again, most famously, we'll get to it. He's the guy who built the Empire State Building, and his closest friend was Walter Chrysler. We know the Chrysler Building. We don't know the Rascott Building. He didn't want to put his name on that building, and I think that's indicative of who he was. He, I think in part because he was a money guy, he didn't necessarily need publicity. It wasn't always to his advantage to have newspapers covering his every twist and turn.
0: So what brought you to JJR? What brought you to Rasco?
1: Yeah, it's kind of a, a funny two-sided story. First, I wrote a book about Alfred Sloan. Now, Sloan is a name that has not disappeared. The Sloan Foundation, uh, he's often called the father of corporate management. The Sloan School at MIT, we know who Alfred Sloan is. And I wrote that biography, and I enjoyed it a great deal. But Sloan was a one-dimensional guy. He was a businessman, and every waking hour essentially was devoted to return on investment. (laughs) And the irony was, while I'm writing about Sloan, there's this guy a half a step behind him, the number two at General Motors for a number of years after he'd been the number two at DuPont, named John J. Raskob. Raskob was the opposite of Alfred Sloan. He had his hand in so many things, from Catholic philanthropy to politics to banking and investment to real estate. And he was funny. He was like a funny, humorous man. I thought, like, too bad nobody knows about this guy because he's a great biographical subject. So I sort of, in the back of my mind, always thought, I-, I should do something with this character, Raskob. And then, ironically, after my Sloan book got picked up and was widely reviewed, the Wall Street Journal did a nice piece on it. A guy calls me out of nowhere, whose name is Charlie Robinson, who I quickly discover is the grandson of John Raskob. And he says, boy, I liked your, he had one of these patrician voices. I I loved your book, David, about uh, Alfred Sloan, but why don't you write about my grandfather? And I was like, well, you know, maybe, maybe one of these days I will. And he goes, did you know that we have hundreds of boxes of his papers available? And I did not know that. And they had been unprocessed. So Charlie Robinson helped facilitate me getting a hold of just tens of thousands of documents. So I'm a historian. I got to have the paper trail. I got to have the evidence to write my stories. And so this nice confluence of events led me to write the book.
0: How, how long does it take you to go through all of that information? <laughs> and and then you probably went down other rabbit trails. So yeah. what was this, uh, two years, three years of research or
1: more? No, it took more than that. It took probably almost five years. And because there was so much paper, and I was trying to be like, you know, like a good corporate guy. I don't want to make any assessments till I've got all the evidence in front of me, all the data I needed to make my analyses. I, I kind of did other things at the same time. I mean, I need to keep writing, I need to keep selling books and things. So I actually wrote a couple other books while I was just plowing through all of the material rascal kept. I guess maybe you know, maybe it makes sense for a numbers guy. He kept everything, everything from like receipts for dry cleaning the major deals he did with the Morgan banks and it was all there. And so it made, made for a really fun project, but he, a long project.
0: He even did that with his house. I know that second home he built him and his wife, he had all the receipts for it. Uh, it's just amazing.
1: Uh, yeah. That's how his mind worked. I think.
0: So did you meet with just the grandson? Were there other family members still descendants that you got to visit interview?
1: Yeah, it was also a timing thing. So I was just in time in a way. So he had a lot of children, 13 children, and a few were still surviving in the early 21st century. So I, I did talk to some of his children, which was fascinating, as well as some of his grandchildren. i uh, talked to a couple of people who knew him through business circles. Uh, one of the most exciting things was I talked to Irène DuPont, uh, who knew, obviously, his uncle, Pierre DuPont, but also knew Raska. So yeah, it it was one of the fun things of a project like this is I sort of got a peek into this world of these elite capitalists and the world that they had made and who they were as people, not just as narrow businessmen. So yeah, it was it was really cool to find my way into that world.
0: Well, I'm I'm envious. I'm not even a historian. Uh, let me compliment you on the book. This I I do love business history. In fact, behind me, even though this is a podcast. I, I picked some of my favorite business history uh, books. I got Freedom's Forge. Uh, I've got The Power Broker, which I believe Al Smith, Al Smith mm-hmm. is in is in your book. Uh, I got The Wiz Kids, maybe one of my favorites. Uh, love that book. But I know you can't really answer this. But you wrote this book twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, and yet I just came across it in twenty nineteen. And here it is, one of my favorite books. So I'm I'm a little surprised I did not find out about this book until just recently. Again, I know you can't comment, but I just want to say <laughs> outstanding, outstanding oh, book. A- any business historian, even someone interested in just business, is gonna get a lot out of this. But let's, so. let's let's jump into the the book. We have a limited amount of time. So I just picked some of the, the high points. But I would say that friendship, and you may have to give some background but this young man, at one time he's a young man, uh, grew up in, in New York uh, near the, I believe, the Erie Canal, correct? And then yes. eventually, once, he, once he's ready to leave the nest, uh, he finds out about uh, Pierre DuPont through a former employer. I would say that that friendship is really what he, he could have been a great person anyway without that friendship, but really I would say that is probably a defining moment in his life personally and professionally. Uh, Agree. Yeah,
1: it was an extraordinary partnership between Raskob and Pierre DuPont, and I think really speaks to something about the best of what America can be and what the best in American business can be. Talk about two men who came from such completely different backgrounds. Raskob is an immigrant son Comes from a lower middle-class background in the provinces, no connections, never goes to college. Pierre DuPont, as the name indicates, is a well-born man, comes from a long lineage of leading business people, Uh, MIT graduate, an extraordinary figure. And yet they treated each other soon enough as equals, as partners, as individuals who had some of the same interests and concerns and just had this kind of natural, amazing rhythm with one another. So I think Raskop in particular did have a gift for friendship and collegiality. Pierre DuPont was a much more shy and reserved man. But Raskob I think, brought out uh, DuPont's ability to work with others in a way that Pierre might not have done himself. So I don't know if we'd have Pierre DuPont if it wasn't for John Raskob. They they had a great synergy with one another.
0: uh agree 100%. Uh, the early deals, so he started out, Raskop started out as a, I almost said $5 a week. That was his first job, but I think he negotiated in a handwritten note, $10 a week. And by the way, you're going to pay my fare uh, to get there. I think that was a, the, the deal. Uh, but some of those early deals, I may not be using the right terminology, but uh, municipal uh, railways, um, what, maybe trolley systems, but I think Raskob was very instrumental in buying up some some of those lines. I think one was in Dallas. I can't remember where some of the others were. He did a lot of those deals from beginning to end. But that was some of the early deal-making that Raskob did with, did with Pierre. But I think Pierre was more of a yes-no person. Raskob went out and did it.
1: I think they both had this amazing gift for numbers, first of all. And second all, an ability to take risks. Uh, that's just extraordinary in retrospect. They both were very young men when they started out. Now, again, Pierre had sort of that cultural capital behind him. He had a name. He had some financial resources. But he was in his 20s when he started doing some sort of amazing financial investments. And Raskop was 20, 21 years old. Again, no college degree, no background in accounting. He's just sort of figuring it out. And what is extraordinary is that both men kind of figured out what a few capitalists in the late 19th century had already done in railroads, which was how to kind of do leverage buyouts to basically use very small amounts of their own money, but instead to sell banks or investors on the revenue streams that the companies they sought to buy would generate. Now, again, to us, this is sort of second nature. This just was not how business was done back in the day. And the ability to get that kind of credit off the ground took a lot of convincing of money men and investors and bankers. And I guess DuPont and Rascal, because again of their, their great acuity with numbers, they could just lay it out for them. And they showed these kind of figures in a way I think was rarely done before that time. And that was something that they would continue. Uh, one of my favorite stories is eventually in DuPont, they had these huge charts. And they had a whole room where they would put up the charts of the numbers of the company. This was Raskob's doing, and then with others. So that anyone could, if they had a a mind for numbers, just look at these charts and say, oh, I get it. This is why we're investing in this product and not in that product. This is why we can afford that bond and not that other bond. So they could kind of bring along the rest of the executive crew onto whatever new risk entrepreneurial adventure they were going to go on. So, again, this was by the time he was 20. Raskop had that ability to use numbers to help less numerate folk understand both the risks and rewards involved in investments. And that was the gift that just kept giving for John Raskop.
0: I'm salivating because I'm thinking, I wonder if David took any pictures of those big charts. I would almost give an arm and a leg just to see what some of those look like. Uh, one, one question I've been very, very curious about, would the DuPont family been where they are today had Raskub not figured out how to start buying out Coleman, which I'm going to have you fill that in, fill in that backstory. So we have Coleman in the picture and Alfred DuPont in the picture. Uh, Rasco was very instrumental in getting those bought out or at least a big position of their stock mm-hmm. What's your thoughts on that? And again, it's a great backstory. We'll be right back.
1: Money is all around us and we think about it more than almost every other
0: aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host Matt Heslin brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health and beyond. Together they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration.
1: You know, the DuPont company we think of today, a world leader, was not certain to become that. At at the beginning of the 19th century, the company was formed as an individual ownership company, and it became an explosive company and a successful one. But even as late as 1900, it was, compared to what it is today, you know, medium-sized, small-time, really was dependent on a kind of legal collusion among explosion-makers. And it was Pierre Dupont and his two cousins who saw the possibilities of taking this family company and making it a juggernaut. But to do it, they needed a lot more money. They needed a lot more investment capacity. And that's where John Rascob came in to help those cousins figure out how to generate the capital, the borrowed capital that they would need to go big time. And the first thing was to just buy out other family members. And again, it's extraordinary to me that they It'd be the equivalent, I think, about $400 million in 2021 dollars that they needed to borrow. (laughs) They had no money themselves. They were young men. So first, they figured out how to do that. And then, as you suggested, the next step was eventually for Pierre, who was the most visionary and, to be frank, probably the most capable of the cousins to take the company public and run it himself. And that was step two. And again, it took a lot of money. And now it took money working with bankers and Wall Street and others. And that's, again, where Raskop had a real gift. He was the guy who could go to New York, schmooze the bankers, but schmooze them with evidence. Here's the numbers. Here's how we do it. Here's the return on investment. I can guarantee you, whether it was true or not, it's another story. And raise the capital to take DuPont to a whole new level with Pierre running it.
0: I'm glad you said that about, you know, showing the evidence. Here's the story, because I cannot tell where in your writing that Raskob was reckless. I mean, he would not do something unless it wasn't going to pay off in the end, because by the way, he's got his own skin in the game. He's invested heavily in DuPont. And then the next deal he's heavily invested in, which is probably his biggest coup and his big success, bringing the DuPont family into General Motors. That is a stroke. That we're talking Warren Buffett mindset, <laughs> and that's that's my opinion. Uh, yeah. Push back if you want to, but your your thoughts on just him bringing the family into uh, b- b- uh, Durant was just a little bit of a loose cannon, uh, but yet no, you trust me. <laughs> this guy knows what he's talking about.
1: But yeah. uh, to talk about that, you know, it's, it's it's funny to think of the auto industry as being the high tech, high risk business that it once was. But in the early 20th century, no one knew if automobiles would be the real thing or if it was just going to be like a, a plaything for very wealthy people, sort of like buying a jet plane would be today. Raskup early on, again, because he always had his nose to the ground as he was listening he understood this could be the next big thing, that the auto industry was going to be the juggernaut that took the United States to a whole other level. So he started investing his own money. And again, he doesn't have much, but he's starting to buy stock in auto companies. And he sees General Motors as the most likely to succeed. Now, Ford is privately owned. You you can't buy into Ford at that point. So he's betting on General Motors. And then, of course, what happens is DuPont makes a zillion dollars Selling explosive products during World War One. Right. And they have so much capital, they don't know what to do with it. And Ratzep goes, I, I have an idea. <laughs> he says, the next big thing is the auto industry. And the company that could go number one is desperate for investment. And if I'm never- the owner of that company, a guy, guy named Billy Durant. Who was a seat-to-the-pants manager with extraordinary instincts, but the opposite of Raskob, the opposite of Dupont, not a numbers guy, a salesman, a natural-born salesman. Raskob sees the possibility, and he slowly—and it took a while. Luckily, they had a little while. Convinces Pierre Dupont, his boss, essentially, and then others. This is where he parked the money. And if I'm not, this is how we how we grow this money.
0: If I'm not mistaken, Pierre he. I think that Durant was kind of the, maybe an obstacle, but he did agree pretty early on, but there were two or three other family members that you mentioned just briefly. They were not completely on board, but eventually that happened. And that's just another one of his great capabilities or is being able to get people around the table and get them to say yes. And, and again, just what a, what a gift he had, which is people, uh, before we get into some of his character traits, I've always, I'm always curious what an author thinks when one of their fans and readers points things out. So I'm going to be curious if you find these uh, intriguing. But even during those wealthy years, during those wealthy years, Raskob was doing everything he could to help his family members and friends to ride on this wave of success. He he wasn't just doing this for himself. Now he didn't necessarily write people checks. But he'd tell friends back home, he'd tell family members, you need to be investing in this. Again, just a, a great trait uh, in Raskob.
1: He was a people person. I mean, the two don't always go together. Numbers guys and people guys don't always fit together. He had both of those skills. And I think it was empathy. He he came from nowhere. He took risks. He had obvious talent. And he wanted others to do the same. I mean, he believed that this was something regular people could accomplish. So as you say, he, his old friends in Lockport, you know, guys who were going to make lower middle-class incomes, he would write them. I mean, again, he kept all the letters. I know he did. He'd write them over and over and say, like, listen, just take a dollar a week and invest it in the following ways, and you're going to do really well. And the other thing he did was he said, and your kid, save a little money, send him to school. I'll, I'll, I'll go 50-50 with you. He would incentivize his friends. I'll give you five bucks, you put in five bucks and we'll send your little kid to college. That's the, that's the future. So he had this incredible gift for warmth and generosity. You know, it was the old cliche. He, he'd rather teach somebody how to fish than simply give them the fish. So he did believe in trying to get people to understand investment and how to gain the skills they needed. And, you know, just hundreds of people were in his purview that he tried to help.
0: If I'm not mistaken, it may have been chapter eight. And again, it's probably been a while since you've read through this book. But chapter eight or nine, he was one. He was on the early. I want to say he was on the front end of pension plans. So there's yeah. you, you, the the labor movement, uh, and that's where he started getting interested in just some of the social issues of the day. And I think he was one of the early proponents of of every employee having a share of the you know having a share of stock. Uh, he also liked that being tied to results as well, but, uh, that was another area where you see his generosity, uh,
1: flowing through him. Yeah. I mean, he, he was a very modern guy in a lot of ways in that he thought of profit sharing. He thought that if you could get more and more people invested in equities, especially in the companies in which they worked, you'd have better morale. <laughs> you'd have people more committed to the company over the long term, and you'd create a middle class. So, you know, he didn't believe in unions necessarily, but he had a different solution for creating economic equity in the United States.
0: If you don't mind, I want to hit some of his character traits and just listening to you. We have picked up on a lot of them, but uh, one of them kind of smiling at he was not a miser, but he tracked every expenditure. And I'm th- <laughs> it's just hilarious. And it reminded me a little bit of Benjamin uh, Franklin, but uh <laughs> You think that was just, just instinct, instinctual for him to just track numbers like that?
1: I think he gave him comfort. You know, there's a certain kind of person who likes a tremendous amount of order, even in the midst of chaos. So here's Raskov, somebody who, as you say, would look at every expenditure, every cost, write it down, keep track of it, weekly, monthly. He had all these charts. He did it himself, even when he was rich. So he enjoyed that process. And yet here's a guy who's willing to take unbelievable risks economically. So keeping a careful eye on every penny and then willing to gamble 20 percent of his fortune on the next big idea he had. So somehow those two things, I think, kept him in a kind of psychological equilibrium so he could take those big risks because he felt like he was doing everything he could to account for his financial well-being. Yeah. Interesting kind of contradiction. I, I think maybe it's not so atypical though, for big risk-taking entrepreneurs. I,
0: I guess you could call, I don't know if you call this a character trait, just the way he was a uh, hot wired, uh, his boss, Pierre, a little bit more laid, laid back. He's a guy he would yeah. want to go home and be a part of his gardens, uh, that he <laughs> spent more time with, uh, as he retired. But this guy we're talking about, he threw himself into everything I even find it hilarious uh, where before he got married, he'd go to a different church. Just that was a strategy, hoping he'd find the the lady of his life. But I mean,
1: everything he just went all out. Yeah, he was peripatetic, and and I I write about this that just as if he liked to have a complete accounting of every nickel he spent, he hated to be still. He loved to be in motion. It made him happy somewhere. Just when he went to work, he would walk as fast as he could. (laughs) He never sauntered. (laughs) He walked fast. And his children actually told me a great story. He would take weekends at his immense mansion summer place, and they had a a huge diving board that went into the river. And Rascal would sort of quickly move his way there, strip off his clothes, put on his bathing suit, go on top of this huge tower, and then fly into the river. And just all the kids would think was hysterical that their dad and then grandfather, just this ball of energy. Didn't matter how old he was, he still did the same routine. So again, I think there's a nice natural advantage to having that kind of energy. If you're going to be a guy who wants to become, you know, a world-class leader in finance and economics.
0: My favorite trait of his, and we'll hit on this in just a few minutes, but humility that I I get to serve a lot of chief executive officers and, course I I I get to pick my bosses and they all have humility and that has to be my favorite trait of his it's it's it was so apparent as you're going through those records you you probably learned quickly this guy it's not about me
1: is it Yeah he he wasn't doing things for ego and it was again intriguing to try to understand that like what motivated him he, it wasn't self-aggrandizement He didn't want to have the biggest diamond ring on his hand or the fanciest watch. He liked liked good things, don't get me wrong. But what drove him, it seemed to me, was he liked to be involved with other people doing great things. He wanted to make companies great. He wanted to make philanthropic gifts that were great, that helped the church, that helped the parishioner. So he was sort of other-directed in that sense. It wasn't about himself. It was about what he could enable to happen. And you now that's a good gift for a leader, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to as we kind of wrap up this section on just the the book itself after General Motors. And again, that the whole section of the book about General Motors is just uh, phenomenal. But after General Motors, he started getting into politics. Now, that started happening a little bit before. And again, I want you to correct me if I'm mistaken he was self-taught even in finance he's self-taught so he didn't he didn't have the education that pierre did so he didn't read a lot so it wasn't until i think someone handed him a book on i can't remember the topic but he i think there's there's a trigger something was triggered in him on the whole area of politics but he eventually started getting into that arena kind of walk us through why do you think he started developing that interest in Uh, The political scene?
1: I think Raskop was not unlike some of the other more thoughtful business leaders of his time. You got to remember, we're talking sort of the era, the progressive era, and then into the New Deal era. And increasingly, government was playing a bigger role in business. So I think whereas in even into the late 19th century, a lot of business figures could basically bracket off politics. Yeah, maybe they worried about a tariff or a few other small things, but it didn't intrude in their lives. Uh, The DuPont company gets a huge antitrust suit launched against them by the Justice Department. You could not avoid politics. Uh, Congress started to rail against the DuPont company for being, you know, the the merchants of death, selling too many explosives to too many people. So I think Raskop, again, as you say, he's one of these guys, his mind's always ticking, and he's watching this, and he's thinking, I better figure this out. This is important, I think, because it's intruding on what I love, the DuPont company, General Motors, business, the creativity of an entrepreneur. So he, you're right. He's self-taught. He starts reading. He starts talking to people, joins the Chamber of Commerce. He joins other business associations. Again, he's that kind of guy, right? If he's going to do something, he's going to do it right. Eventually, ends up with... Going to Washington, D.C. sits with Woodrow Wilson as they try to solve the labor problem. So, again, everybody can kind of recognize, oh, this guy's smart. He's a live wire. So he kind of gets pulled into things. And I think eventually by, by the late 1920s, he's also just looking for a new adventure. I mean, he's that kind of guy. He sort of has conquered the corporate world. I mean, he's launched two of the great business corporations the world's ever seen, DuPont and General Motors. So he thinks, well, maybe it's time for presidential politics. And sure enough, he becomes the right-hand man of the 1928 Democratic nominee for the president, which is kind of ironic. He'd always been a Republican. The Democratic nominee, who's like him, kind of an Irish immigrant guy, a self-made man. So he and Governor Al Smith of New York become quite a team. And if Smith had managed to win in 1928, I'm pretty sure Raskob probably would have been the secretary of treasury or something like that. He picked the wrong horse in that particular race.
0: By the way, one of the books on my stack, I'm having a hard time not liking Al Smith because The Power Broker, a uh, f- phenomenal book. Did he do it right? Did did As Raskob got involved in politics, again, this is a, an opinion question, but did he do
1: it right? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. I think that to some extent, what Raskob saw was that the United States in the late 1920s was at a pivot point. And we know what's going to happen. The New Deal is going to take over. Roosevelt's going to create a new kind of social welfare system. That was not raskin's politics. I mean, by our terminology, he was a conservative. He was a pro-business guy. He wanted to keep the Democratic Party from going in that direction. <laughs> he wanted the Democratic Party to be as pro-business as the Republican Party. That was his hope and expectation. And I think Smith would have been that man Smith had a lot of respect for business and finance coming out of New York. Uh, you know, he, again, as I said, didn't turn out the way he thought. And eventually Raskob and Pierre DuPont and Alfred Sloan all become fierce enemies of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. Even, and do their best in some ways to launch the modern conservative movement.
0: Even though at times he still maintained a relationship with FDR in some one-to-one meetings. And that's one thing I I was impressed. And that's why I asked you the question, because Raskob never came across to me as polarizing. Um, I mean, he definitely had his position, but that's why I asked, because I think there's a right way and maybe maybe a not so good way (laughs) as we approach uh, politics. So next question, I'm smiling and uh, we've got a a certain birthday coming up for a certain uh, building. Uh, that we all love, who are U.S. citizens. If we were to go to downtown Manhattan right now and ask 100 people who is responsible for building the Empire State Building, how many of that 100 b- would probably get right? I have an opinion. It's a low number. Do you agree, David? I, I think the number would be zero. <laughs> I was going to say maybe two. <laughs> no, you're uh, generous. Uh, he. So here's this little... Bookkeeper clerk making $5 an hour. And he's the guy responsible for writing the checks. And by the way, I'm stressing here's this guy who's built up this wealth. And so David, in your book, I'm stressing out because he's going to lose it all. He's going to lose it all. And, uh, but yet he pulled this off. Why, why did he build the empire state building?
1: I think in part, it was a kind of game. <laughs> So I think a lot of the wealthiest men in New York saw skyscrapers as the next big thing. And you know, there'd been the auto industry, <laughs> there'd been the chemical industry, it was New York real estate. And again, Raskob's very close friends with Walter Chrysler. And Chrysler had gotten into the skyscraper game in a big time way. And I think that's what kind of turned Raskob's mind to like, oh, that would be fun. Let's see. If I can't build one even taller than Walter's building. It also was, it seemed at the time, a good economic investment. I mean, Raskov, ironically, a huge advocate of the bull market of the 1920s, did know that there was a bubble brewing. So he started to pull his money out of the stock market before the crash. And he had a lot of capital. What to do with the capital? And he was trying to convince other wealthy people Buildings. Buildings will outlast whatever stock market bubble crash occurs. They didn't realize how long the Great Depression would last. So that's what kind of lured him into it. The fun of it, compete with his buddy, Walter Chrysler, and a place to park a whole lot of money. So Pierre DuPont, some other big bankers, they all bankrolled the Empire State Building.
0: Now, you get to finish this sentence or this thought. There's a but. He gets a built. Year one. Year two, year three, how empty is that building?
1: (laughs) As you say, uh, WAGs in New York called it not the Empire State Building, but the, ouch, empty state building. Uh, Man, it was a catastrophe. I mean, commercial real estate just tanked just as bad as the stock market, it turned out. Raskob lost a lot of money and he did something that he had sworn never to do before, which was he kept having to throw good money after bad, he couldn't get the banks to back his play in this case. So as as liens came due, as, as as bank credit started to disappear, he had to throw his own cash into the building and he put almost all of it into that building. Red ink followed red ink. It wasn't really till after World War II, and several years after World War II, that things turned around.
0: And, and, and again, Randstub
1: does get the last laugh. That building is worth a fortune I mean, by it, 1950.
0: It turned around, not just or I mean, in a big way. Yeah. Um, as I'm listening to you, David, and I've looked at some of the other books you've written, I thought, I wonder what his business acumen is like. As I'm listening to you, your business acumen is broad. Uh, very, so I think you, this question will make sense to you. Uh, if JJR... And Warren Buffett had been contemporaries.
1: What would that friendship have been like?
0: Again, <laughs> we're, it's, it's a fun question to think about, but uh-huh.
1: well, what would that friendship look like? Well, it is a fun question because in two very different eras, they're sort of the biggest, most successful, at least JJR for most of the time, advocates of equity investment. Yes. And of doing it right, doing it by the numbers not throwing all your money into one place, but being thoughtful and careful and rational. I think they would have gotten a huge kick out of each other and taken a lot of respect for one another. And they both had some of the same personality, don't they? Yes. I mean, they're not exactly men without confidence. They're very confident men, very secure in their own self, but no, no need for bluster, no need for carrying on, no need for loud voices. So, yeah, it would have been an interesting friendship, I think.
0: (laughs) If you don't mind, as we wrap up, I've got some nosy curiosity questions. Uh, I've interviewed a few historians. I love just listening to people like you. I could just listen to you all day. Now, you may say my students don't think that way. Shame on them. But I'm assuming you're a reader. and Now, your work causes you to read a lot in your job. So maybe you like to turn it off, but are, are you are you a reader outside of research and and I'm going to call it deep analysis?
1: Oh yeah, oh sure. I mean, I love to write, and most writers love to read. And well, what, I'm one of
0: them. What are some of your favorite genres? What are some of your
1: favorite books? Oh, that's a that's a good one. Um, you know, I've been reading a fair amount lately about sort of where we are more or less today as a society and economically. And I I just read a book I really enjoyed because it's a very hopeful book. And sometimes I like to read hopeful books. It's called Barrio America, How Latino Immigrants Saved America's Cities by Andrew Sandoval Strauss. And I think especially for business readers, it's, it's a pretty fun book because it's not about big corporate society. It's about small entrepreneurs, guys who open up small stores, little grocery stores and how surprisingly a new class of immigrant entrepreneurs have really started to change America's cities for the better. And it's a very hopeful and and happy book, especially with all our debates about immigration and everything. Um, I recommend that book strongly. Another book, which is more predictable. uh, I don't know if you've read it, Margaret O'Mara's new book called The Code, which is about sort of the making of Silicon Valley. And that's a fascinating book and again you know a more of a mixed bag she's got a critical set of concerns about some of what's going on in silicon valley but again sort of shows that that incredible energy that went into the making of a world that just you know 40 years ago didn't much exist so those are two kind of business-oriented books i really get a kick out of in particular
0: as a historian who are other historians that you like that you enjoy reading
1: yeah that's a good question um Again, I read really widely. Uh, Tim Borstelman, I think, is a great historian who writes about America's role in the world. Fred Logaval, who's written, a, he, he won the Pulitzer Prize recently um, for his books about Vietnam. Will Hitchcock, another friend of mine, actually, I got to be honest, who wrote a great biography of Dwight D. Eisenhower that I think everybody would get a big kick out of. A good Christmas gift for grandpa, maybe. Um, those are just a few. Why?
0: Should we study history? Hmm. I'm biased. I'm biased. You're going to be biased, but my strong opinion is we should be students of history. First of all, true, false, and then why?
1: Yeah, obviously, I, I think you're right that I spent my life writing history books, so I must believe there's some utility to it. I think for leaders or aspiring leaders in particular, an examination of the sort of historical parameters of the human experience. It's just so valuable for one, extending our, our knowledge, just literally a base of knowledge for allowing us to have a kind of imagination of what the world looks like from other perspectives and times and places and people. And it kind of increases our empathy, how other people face the struggles and crises and adventures that the world has thrown at us. So, so history is one of those places where you can kind of put yourself and situate yourself in new worlds, new places. And just learn about yourself and the world you live in, unlike almost any other genre, I think. So, yeah, I'm a big fan.
0: You've written several books. Uh, the Sloan book that you mentioned, I went ahead and I bought a used copy. Unfortunately, th- there's no new printings of it. Uh, I did just recently buy your book on uh, crack. The full, uh, what's the full title?
1: I've got a sp- Hot Cocaine Street Capitalism and the Decade of Greed. So I kind of took my business history chops. And instead of looking at General Motors and DuPont, I looked at the drug business (laughs) and a very different kind of business, you know, a more malevolent business in some ways, but a fascinating one at the same time. And one of the takeaways I had from the book, just real quick, here's often some young men without education, without capital behind them, who take a wrong turn. (laughs) They definitely take a wrong turn. They do something that's wrong and illegal and dangerous and, and really predatory. But I was shocked at the talent they had the skills and ingenuity they had. And I thought, if only these young guys, you know, somehow figured out the right way to go. It's just a reminder, there's talent all over the place. And it's up to all of us in some ways to make sure we channel that talent in productive directions and not let it fall prey to the ugly side of life.
0: I'm going to list all of your book titles that are show notes. Are there any other titles you'd like to just highlight real quickly? Uh, I got a
1: book on modern conservatism that I think is useful too. The Rise and Fall of Modern American Conservatism, I, I think it kind of points to the dilemma Republicans and conservatives have right now, what direction the party's going to go. Uh, that's, a, that's a useful one.
0: Any new projects you're working on that we can be looking forward to?
1: I, I'm writing about the war on drugs right now. So the the book I did on crack got me kind of thinking about how we, where do we go from here on moving away from kind of the punitive carceral approach we've taken to drug addiction, drug abuse, What's next? And obviously the legalization of cannabis has put my mind around that. Like, where do we go from here? David, this
0: has been fantastic. I I just felt like a a little kid going into a baseball card shop as a a youngster. I've been looking forward to this interview. And again, phenomenal book. I cannot recommend it enough.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Been a pleasure.
0: You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. The name of the book is Everybody Ought to be Rich, The Life and Times of John J. Raskob by David Farber, today's guest. What stands out about Rascob again, an incredible numbers acumen, And then number two, he figured out the role of finance early on in his career. He just had these Warren Buffett-like attributes. And then number three, because he was an outgoing people person, he had this knack for explaining complex topics so that investors and bankers could understand him. And they never, I mean never, took a bloodbath either. They won Two Number three, he, he took action. He was not passive. He did not wait for anyone to tell him, John, you need to go in this direction. He was a man of action. Those are the attributes I really like about John J. Raskub. Again, the book, Everybody Ought to be Rich, The Life and Times of John J. Raskub, highly recommend it. Hey, next week, it's going to be fun too. I'm calling our guest, the CFO of all CFOs. His name is Jack Bacola. He's the author of Secrets of Rockstar CFOs. He's also the founder of the CFO Leadership Council. Jack and I will be going back and forth talking about the ingredients of a rockstar CFO. And that was a fun conversation that we had a few weeks ago. It will be released this coming week. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time.